So um, the uh, path of the Buddha, the path of Buddhism, the path of mindfulness practice is a path of liberation that leads to liberation, leads to our seeing deeply into the way things are, and in doing that, purifying our heart in the way that James talked about a couple of days ago, purifying the heart of greed, hate, fear. So we can not only see things as they are, but we can live in harmony with the way things are. The path of liberation. And there's a tradition periodically or various places in the history of Buddhism of paying uh, respect or paying homage to the people who um, attained liberation, became liberated, liberated their heart, purified their heart, who exemplified the possibility of freedom, and uh, kind of uh, uh, sometimes reciting, sometimes in a ceremonial way, the names, the lists of the people uh, in the past whose own example and own liberation supports our practice, even here at Spirit Rock today. And I wanted to, um, I was moved today to recite or to read to you a list of one of these, uh, a list of names of people who were liberated, enlightened in, the, in days of old. And this is uh, a list of some of the women who were enlightened, uh, liberated during the time of the Buddha. So in the lifetime of the Buddha, some 2,500 years ago, uh, these are some of the women and you might think of them, think of these women who were walking around India a long time ago, and we still remember their names, and we still recite their names. And, um, and they are a part of the foundation upon which the whole tradition of Buddhism rests, the, the inspiration and the example they gave. So this is a list of the fully enlightened, fully awakened women that have been preserved by the tradition. And in enlisting their names, the, um, in this list, uh, their title is Acharya. And Acharya is Indian word, Pali, Pali, Sanskrit word, meaning teacher. So each of these were considered to be teachers. So you can kind of, as you hear each name, maybe you can kind of imagine this being a real person, someone you could have met if you were around back then. Maybe it could have been you. Acharya Mahapajapati. Acharya Mitta, Acharya Yasudara, Acharya Tissa, Acharya Upasamma, Acharya Vishaka, Acharya Kemma, Acharya Upalavana, Acharya Sundarinanda, Acharya Badeshi, Acharya Patachara, Acharya Uttama, Acharya Badda, Acharya Nanduttara, Acharya Dantika, Acharya Sakula, Acharya Siha, Acharya Damadina, Acharya Kisogotami, Acharya Basati, Acharya Ubiri, Acharya Patachara, Acharya Isadasi, Acharya Badakapilani, Acharya Mutta, Acharya Kappa, Acharya Dhamma, Acharya Chitta, Acharya Sumana, Acharya Vimala, Acharya Adakasi, Acharya Padumavati, Acharya Ampapali, Acharya Anupama, Acharya Abhirupananda, Acharya Genti. This goes on. It's a long list of people. The enlightened women, people, women who are enlightened at the time of the Buddha. And the tradition uh, preserves more than just uh, the names, but uh, preserves uh, uh, some of their story and some of the uh, words that they spoke, the verses they composed. And uh, some of them are quite inspiring, uh, some of these uh, verses and stories of their lives. And there's one, there's uh, uh, some of them, some of the women celebrate in verse, uh, seemingly um, ecstatically uh, their freedom, their liberation they've attained, they've reached, they've tasted so Acharya Mutta she said at one point or composed this, this verse so free 
so thoroughly free am I from three crooked things set free, from mortar, pestle, and crooked old husband. <laughs> well, it goes on, but this is, this is, <laughs> this is relatively mundane. And, um, but it counts for something. And then she, then she goes on, having uprooted the craving that leads to becoming, I'm set free from aging and death. Having uprooted craving, I am set free from aging and death. And this is kind of a strange statement to be set free of aging and death when I think it's obvious to most of us that no one is free of aging and death, that all of us are aging uh, and all of us are going to die. So how could this... She she speaks with great confidence. She says, so free, so thoroughly free am I. And how in this confidence can she also then make the statement I am, set, I, I am set free from aging and death. And this, uh, we'll maybe come back to that as we go along here. Then there's uh, Sumangala's mother, who said something similar. Uh, actually, I'll read this version. Free, I am free. How glad I am to be free from my pestle. My, cook, my cooking pot seems worthless to me. I can't even bear to look at his sun umbrella. My husband disgusts me. <laughs> well, I don't know, but anyway. It's what it's <laughs> so that's the first part, the more mundane part. And then it goes on to the more profound aspect. Um, so I destroy greed and hate with a sizzle. And I am the same woman who goes to the foot of a tree and says to herself, ah, happiness, and meditates with happiness. That was a beautiful little verse. She proclaims her freedom, how free she is. She celebrates it and uh, talks about how she ended with a sizzle, I guess pretty quickly, her greed and her hate. And then kind of, she went off, off to become a nun and the nuns often lived very simple lives. And she went off to sit to the foot of a tree. They often have these stories where they go off into the woods and just sit at the foot of the tree. Very simple. And then there she says, ah, happiness. And then meditates with that happiness. Isn't that great? I think it's lovely. Myself. Uh, and there's it's wonderful. These stories are wonderful. I, I recommend that you uh, read some of them. There's one book called The First, the First Buddhist Women that talks about some of the, it records and, and translates some of these stories. And they're stories of women of all, all walks of life. Uh, some of them who uh, lived in great poverty, who were beggars and great despair. And some of them who um, uh, were visited by great tragedy. Their husbands or their children died. Some of them who um, were uh, uh, kind of lowly street prostitutes. And some of them who were great courtesans and some of them who were phenomenally wealthy, and some were very poor, and some were married, and some were not. And, and you get a sense, you know, that they're not so different than people sometimes in, in our society. And somehow they found their own way on the path of liberation and found the peace. They often talk about it being attaining peace, some kind of peace, um, freedom, freedom from greed, greed, hate, fear, delusion. So what is this, uh, what is this um, liberation? What is it to be liberated from greed, hate, fear? And one of the things that strikes me in, in reading the stories of the nuns and also the monks is the simplicity of their life and the simplicity of seemingly of their attainment. It's so, something very simple that uh, liberation is. It's not this, uh, you know, Buddhists don't exactly prescribe to the Big Bang theory of enlightenment. Something very simple. And what is the simplicity that we can attain, that these women celebrate? What is the the liberation that's beyond the limitations of greed, hate, and fear? Or to ask more profoundly, perhaps, who are we? What, what What is it to be alive? What is it to experience life? Where do, we, where do we spend our lives? Do we have a choice where we spend our lives? Where we, and ha- what we, do we have a choice 
where our attention, our awareness inhabits. So I brought with me today some things to show. There's uh, many stories in Buddhism where people hold up flowers. So I wanted to hold up a flower. And I think you can, most of you I think can see the flower. And there's wonderful teaching stories where the Buddha holds up a flower and someone's enlightened or wonderful things happen. So maybe some of you... (laughs) So... I'm glad someone got it. (laughs) Though it's peaceful, James. (laughs) And, uh, And so you hold up this flower and you all have a sense. You look at it, you see it, you have a sense of what it is. And, you know, maybe you can describe in words what it is a little bit, but I think words that describe it tend to kind of fall short often. If you, if you, uh, you know, most of us know the wonderful smell of a rose, but if you could try to describe in words what that fragrance is, you'd have a hard time, I think. Um, but the, the actual sense, the direct experience of smell is something we can all experience. Um, and, the, you know, seeing this flower as it is. In Buddhism, we, there's a lot of emphasis on seeing things as they are. Uh, or in Mahayana Buddhism, they talk about the thusness of things, to see the thusness or the suchness of things, to see it as, as it is in its own suchness, as such, as thus, as it is in its own essence, its own way. So that's all very nice. <laughs> so then what, what's interesting, though, is when I hold up another flower next to it. So now we have two flowers. And now that we have two flowers, we can do some interesting things with this. Because now we can compare them. And now we can say that this is the small flower and this is the big flower. This is the short flower, this is the long flower. We can make a lot of statements in comparison. This is the prettier flower, this is the not-so-pretty flower. This is the real flower, whatever we might want to say. Uh, We can compare them. And the comparative statements about these flowers doesn't, doesn't reside, doesn't live in the flower itself, in the th- thusness of the flower. The comparison is a convention that our mind, it lives in our minds, in the conventions that our minds make. Because it's a pretty arbitrary convention. Because right now, this one here, right, is this small flower. Right? You all agree? But now, if I, if I hold this flower up instead... <laughs> Now, this is the big flower. This is the tall flower. What was, what was a short flower before has miraculously, through my magic powers, been transformed into the tall flower. So, this is all very interesting. <laughs> because it's the world of comparative thinking, the world of conventions, that causes much of our suffering, much of our pain. And it's seeing deeply into this that is one aspect of finding uh, freedom from fear, from hate, and delusion, from greed. So, you know, to bring it to maybe more kind of a personal example, when I was 13, it was 1967, and I was living uh, that spring and summer in Italy, in a small provincial city in Italy. And I thought... I was the coolest, hippest guy in town. Because as a foreigner coming from Los Angeles, I had the longest hair of anyone in that town. I had the only person in town who wore blue jeans. Proof that I was cool. And I walked around town with a certain kind of, you know, feeling good about myself. Cutting edge kind of guy. (laughs) (laughs) So when I came, so then in the end of the summer, I flew back to Los Angeles. In the summer of 67, a lot of things happened in California. And um, I came back to high school, junior high school, I guess. And my hair was not the longest hair on the block anymore. All these guys had longer hair than I had. And everybody's blue jeans, they weren't just simply wearing blue jeans anymore. They were wearing blue jeans that had been uh, bleached and washed 10,000 times and torn and patched. And, you know, some of you might remember what it was like. And I just had regular blue jeans, washed three or four times. (laughs) And um, so suddenly, I was not cool anymore. I was like, you know, not so cool. I was behind the times. 
I was not cutting edge anymore. And my sense of myself changed, you know, I kind of felt kind of, my energy kind of dropped a little bit. Whereas in Italy, I had a lot of energy. The only thing that changed was I flew across the Atlantic. My thusness, this, who I was in my basic sense of, you know, my essence in a sense, or my thusness, hadn't changed one iota. What had changed was who I could compare myself to. And my sense of well-being was dependent on who I was comparing myself to. A lot of our sense of self, who we think we are, in ways that cause us problems and suffering, arises not in who we are in our thusness, in our suchness as we are, but arises when we put ourselves next to someone else and then we compare ourselves to someone else. So, um, and there's a lot of examples of this. Uh, and you can find examples in your own life. Um, you know, in high school I was concerned about my hairline because I have a high forehead. And, uh, and so I used to sit in this class measuring my forehead you know, from one day to the next to see if I can notice any change. <laughs> because it was, you know, consequential because compared to someone else. Uh, you know, we have our body parts, you know, it's too much, too much this or too little that, too long that, too big, too small, too much hair, not enough hair. Um, you know, we have all these ideas. But the way that that's problematic is when we hold that in relationship to someone else, and then we feel inadequate in relationship to that other person, or we feel better than the other person because we have it just right. It's, a compa- it's often a lot, a lot of our self-image and how we feel bad about it. Almost everyone has some bad feelings about their body in some ways in our culture. But it's not who we are in our thusness. It's who we are as an issue in comparison to others. Um, So you might ask yourself, maybe you do a little exercise together. You sit as you are and close your eyes. And see if you can remember in recent times or distant times some of the various judgments you had about your body. Some of the ways in which you kind of felt down because your body was too much one thing or not enough something else. If you can remember what it felt like to be looking in the mirror or looking down at yourself or preoccupied or concerned about how your body seemed. And then take a couple of deep breaths to kind of see if you can clear out the bad news. Take a few deep breaths. Relax as you breathe out. And then, now notice, what is your body's experience of itself? Separate from all your ideas, what is your body's experience of itself right now? Does it feel different, the two? So you can open your eyes. I suspect some of you will have felt a huge difference between the two kinds of ways of experiencing yourself. One way is to experience yourself through the filter of thoughts and ideas and comparative thinking. And the other, to experience the body as it is itself, tends to be a much more pleasant experience, or tends to be a more, more real experience, a more grounded experience. It's, it's, it's feeling ourselves not through the avenue of judgment, but just feeling it as it is itself. Did some of you have that experience? See the difference? A lot of what we do in our life that causes suffering, a lot of what we grasp onto, a lot of what we kind of resist, is not concrete things, real felt experience, we our thusness of things, but rather is the concepts and ideas that arise out of conventional thinking, that arises out of often out of comparative thinking. If I say that I'm a terrible basketball player, then you should ask, compared to what? Because compared to Michael Jordan, I am, but compared to Michael Jackson, maybe I'm not. <laughs> you know, it, it all depends what, what, who I choose to compare myself to. But 
who I compare myself to doesn't need to have any bearing on the joy I feel in playing basketball. There's a certain joy and delight in just kind of being there and on the court and playing. And um, However, I can be plagued by that comparative thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, uh, the whole time. And it kind of detracts from the joy, the pleasure of just being here. The same kind of thing occurs uh, uh, with meditators. We have all these judgments and ideas about who we are as meditators. And we often, it's invisible to us, the fact that this is just conventional ideas of comparative thinking that doesn't really belong to the thusness of who we are in the moment we're meditating. We have ideas, for example, oh, everyone else is sitting so still, but I'm the only one who's just a mess here. Or I'm not making enough progress. Or I'm making, I'm making great progress. Who are all these bumbling fools around me? Um, or it's not happening fast enough. Or, you know, or, you know, you, you know, all these judgments about who we are as a meditator. And some of them play out, you know, getting ready to go to an interview with the teachers because, you know, you want to look good. So you, what are you going to say? You know, which, which, what are you going to report? Because you want to report that what makes you look like a good meditator. Sometimes that occurs occasionally to a few people once in a, once in a great while. <laughs> but rather than looking at ourselves as someone who's successful or failing or a good meditator or a poor meditator or, or any of the categories that we can put ourselves in, any of the judgments we can have that are seeing ourselves through the filter of thoughts and conventions, can we have another experience of ourselves? Another way of experiencing ourselves is to experience the thusness, to be in the thusness of the way things actually are. And in the direct moment of the way things are, they can be both things. They can be both the flower by itself and it can be the big flower. But if we only relate to, oh, that's the big flower, we miss out often on this is also just a flower in its own right. That our fundamental self-worth as human being is already present, is already here. We're already just fine, thank you. Um, and we often miss that because we're often living, uh, residing in the world of thoughts and ideas, in our conventions and our ideas and concepts and our comparative thinking. Most senses of self that we have arise out of comparative thinking. Even the idea of I'm a man or I'm a woman uh, is unnecessary, is going too far. You can actually have a deeper experience of yourself without even those labels. So one of these stories of, uh, of the nuns, um, Mara comes and visits one of the nuns Actually, he comes and visits regularly, the monks and nuns. Mara's job description is to prevent people from becoming free. <laughs> and, uh, and part of uh, the understanding in the tradition is that Mara is just a personification of the inner forces inside our own minds. So, Mara, so this uh, nun named Soma goes out and uh, sits under the foot of a tree to um, practice her meditation quietly someplace. And then Mara, the evil one, wanting to arouse fear and tear, wanting to make her fall away from her practice, approached her and said, that which is to be attained by seers, by the sages, by the awakened ones, that, that place so very hard to reach, women can't with their two-inch discernment attain. What do you think of that? He probably went and said the same thing to the monks. But there are all these cultural ideas, cultural conditionings we have, both as men and women, or as anything, about what we can and can't do, what, what is appropriate and not appropriate. And I know that I've internalized in my past certain conditioning. When you start living in the world of concepts and comparative thinking, you're very susceptible to the conditioning of the society around you and what they think is, being, is important. And so society says certain things about certain members of society that they can't or they can or whatever. We sometimes internalize it. And I know some people have internalized the message that there's various ways they're not good enough. They can't really do it. Not them. And, you know, this is one example of this kind of thing. Women with their two-inch discernment. So, 
Soma heard this, and she, she, she was wise, and she said, that's a strange thing for someone to say. It must be Mara, who's come here to frighten me. So then she addresses Mara and says, what difference does being a woman make when the mind is well-centered, when insight is progressing, when I see clearly, rightly into the Dhamma? Anyone who thinks I am a woman or I am a man or that is concerned about being anything at all, that one Mara is fit to address. It's pre- I think it's a pretty radical statement on her part, pretty powerful. If you're caught up in trying to be someone, being fit into a concept or an image, watch out for Mara. But if we can rest somehow in some part of ourselves which is not an image, not an idea, not a concept, we can find our freedom. And what is that? Where do we live most of our lives? Where, do, where does our attention usually live? All too often, most of us live in our thoughts, in our preoccupations in our mind. And there's another place to live. There's a whole other place to live. Uh, and that's one of the functions of this kind of practice we're doing here, is to discover a new place. And the opportunity of retreat is to discover and explore that aliveness, that pulse of life, which is us, but is always greater and more precious than any idea we have about ourselves. You know that? You know that you're more precious than any possible idea you can have of yourself? However, most of us don't know that, and we live, we live actually in the world of thoughts. And to give a kind of a, maybe an example that maybe helps illustrate this, some years ago I was watching football on television with, um, I think it was with, maybe not with James, but with uh, two other Vipassana teachers. And um, so it was a kind of a little unusual group of people to watch football with. And I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't watch football that often. So. And one of the teachers, as any sensible person would do, um, had the mute button, the remote, and hit the mute when the commercials came on. Great. We, when the commercials ended, what I thought was odd was he didn't hit the mute button again to get the sound. And since you know, he was a kind of Vipassana teacher who was about being mindful of things and relating to things maybe in a different way, I thought, this is interesting. Rather than kind of nudging him, I think I'm just going to sit here and find out what this is like to watch football without sound. And eventually he did hit the mute button and the sound came on. And I was struck by the huge difference between watching the game with the sound and without the sound. Without the sound, I can follow the game. I can get some sense of what was going on. The guys were standing facing each other and they fell down. <laughs> and then every once in a while, some guy would get the ball and seem to run past all the guys who had fallen down. And he would be making it down the field. It was kind of nice. You kind of knew where the direction he was going. It was a goal line. And he crossed the 50-yard and the 40. You got a sense it was kind of nice. You know? And, oh, it looks like he's going to make it. Oh, no, here comes this guy out of the, from the right. And, you know, he looks like he's going to tackle them. Oh, yeah, he tackled them. They both fell down. And, and, you know, too bad he didn't make it. But when the sound came on, the difference was we had uh, the sportscaster, the commentator, who was talking about the game as it went along. And his job description, or her, is to get you into the game excited. And now when he was speaking, it was like, oh my God, he's made it to the 50, he's made it to the 40, he's made it to the 30, and I'm on the edge of my seat, or I'm standing. You know, <laughs> I'm really excited. And what I saw was that until that time, I, th- I had in- entangled or conflated the sportscaster the experience of listening to this guy commentating on the game with the game itself. And actually, the two are different from each other. The game is the game, and the, and the commentary the guy was making about the game is the commentary. And in a kind of undiscerning, kind of just taking it all in, I took it all to be the same. But actually, it's possible to distinguish the commentary from the game. As one friend of mine does, uh, he's noticed that um, the national television sportscasters, are uh, rather uh, not as excited about the 49ers as the guy on the radio is, the local radio station, 
So he watches the game on television without the sound, but listens to the sportscaster on the radio because it's more exciting. So you can, you can separate these two things out. Now, this, this principle is, applies to us, and it's a very important principle, that most of us are often living in our commentary about what's going on. We're commenting, commenting constantly about what's going on or, or we're in a commercial, which is we're commentating about something which is not here. <laughs> the past, the future, fantasy. Maybe too many of you spend too much time in commercials and there's no mute button. But, um, but our commentary about our experience is actually not our experience. It's, it's somewhat removed. And one of the powerful avenues of discovering freedom in mindfulness practice is to begin distinguishing the actual thusness, the actual experience we're having from the commentary we're making about it. So one of the great places to experience this is with physical pain. To feel pain in, 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 as we sit is a pretty common experience for meditators. And there's a tremendous wisdom that can happen from sitting with it and not running away from it. And one of the things you can start seeing is the difference between the commentary, the relationship we have to the pain, and the pain in and of itself. And what we try to do is to try to rest in the experience in and of itself. And you can do that a lot easier if you see that the commentary, the judgments, the ideas, is not the pain. But if you don't see them being separate, if they're entangled, then we get entangled with it and it's very kind of hard, and we tend, we tend to become reactive to the situation. And this applies to all kinds of areas in our life. You go, down, you go down to have lunch, and you see what they're serving. Is there any commentary? Once there's a commentary, what arises based on the commentary? Is the commentary the same thing as the meal itself? Is the experience of breathing in the body the same thing as your judgments and ideas about that breathing. I know it's very easy to sit with all, very, even very subtle ideas, kind of almost constantly operating, evaluating the breath. Oh, you know, that's not wasn't quite good enough. Or if I really was present, then it would be a little bit different kind of experience of breath. Or, or kind of sit with a very subtle kind of waiting for something to happen. If I, if I can really be there, with, I can be there with the breath somewhat. And it's not just being with the breath in and of itself, but it's a subtle kind of expectation if something's about to happen or something better happen. Or if I do it right, something will happen. It's like this leaning forward, waiting for something. And that waiting belongs to the world of commentary and ideas and reactions. The breath in and of itself is just a breath in and of itself. Can we settle and rest in our experience in and of itself? That is the great task of this practice, is to find the difference. We don't have to stop having the commentary, but we want to see the separation, the difference between the commentary and the experience. And then, if you can see the difference, then the choice we make in practice is to start living in the experience, not in the commentary. To live more in the direct felt sense of the experience in the present moment, rather than the story and the ideas to live in your body's experience of itself, as opposed to the living in the ideas we have about uh, our body. So what are some of your favorite commentaries that you live in, that we live in? Not, it's not enough, I'm not enough, it's too much, I'm too much. This means, this is happening, and we, we assign meaning to it. Uh, Sylvia, I wanted Sylvia yesterday to tell a story, lovely story that she's told, and, and um, she didn't, so I'll tell it. And uh, I'll find out if I tell it right. Uh, she wanted to be a guest at the San Francisco Zen Center. And uh, so she called up the Zen Center and asked, Can, you know, I'd like to be a guest. And they said, oh, you want to speak to the guest manager, Robert. But he's not in. He'll call you back. So he called her back. But when he called her back, Sylvia wasn't in. So he left a message saying, this is Robert give me a call, and we'll talk about you coming to be a guest. It's great. So she, when she came home, I guess, she called Robert. And she called the Zen Center and said, can I talk to Robert? And the office person said, oh, Robert's not in. So Sylvia said, 
I guess that means that, um, I think this means I'm not supposed to come to Zen Center. And the office person said, no, I think it just means Robert's not in. <laughs> how, of, how often do we assign meaning to things? And we can just, whereas we don't have to, we can just let things be as they are. I think we can do it a lot more often than we do. So assigning meaning belongs to the word of commentary. Then there's negotiating our experience. Some of you probably maybe are negotiating your meditation. If I stay with this pain, then I'll, th- then this will happen. Or if I go, f- you know, if I can just go, if I go take a nap now, or if I really huff and puff for a while, then. In negotiation, you have a plan, a strategy. If then, if then. It's much simpler than that. It's always so simple, the thusness of the experience. Just the thing that's happening right now. What is, what is it in and of itself? If it's already happening, it, you, you, there's no need to judge it, no need to make any, anything more of it, no need to make commentary on it. Just allow yourself to experience what that experience is that's happening right now. Um, I find that mindfulness I think it's a phenomenally wonderful and powerful and delightful and challenging practice to do. But one of the qualities of mindfulness that I like, that of awareness, is that it's non-judgmental. It's non-critical. It's non-guiltful. It's non... It doesn't have the quality of many things that kind of makes our life quite painful. Awareness itself doesn't judge, doesn't go into conflict. Awareness itself just allows the experience to be there as it is, allows the dustness of it to be there. So sometimes, so what is it? Is it possible for us to begin not, is it possible for us to take what happens to us, whatever it is, and allow it to be what it is and not to make anything more of it or less of it? Just allow it to be in its dustness of it. So, such simplicity. That's, I think, part of the simplicity of the practice. You don't have to make anything happen. All you have to do is to feel what is already happening. And it's pretty common for many of us to have ideas, oh, this shouldn't be happening. Or th- but I think anything that happens on a retreat, once it's happened, belongs to the world of thusness. And it's your choice about whether you you start living in the commentary about it or whether you simply leave it in its simplicity as it is. So Sylvia's beautiful instructions this morning, I thought, when you find yourself drifting away from your thought, from from your thought, (laughs) thank you, drifting away from your breath, (laughs) then um, rather than judging and being upset because that's happening, just very matter-of-factly, Notice are you on the in-breath or the out-breath. There's kind of a matter-of-factness to a wakefulness. Oh, this is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. This is what's happening now. When we are in the commentary, in the stories, the past, future, and the fantasies, Oftentimes, our mind and the body are not in the same place. And they're actually kind of split. You know, if I'm here thinking about what happened last week, or if I'm here thinking about lunch, or if I'm sitting here thinking about the interview tomorrow, my mind is in one place and my body is in another place, and we're split from each other. And that kind of split is all too common. And when we live that way most of our life, we become strangers to ourselves. And what part of what mindfulness tries to do and what we're trying to do in kind of coming into the thusness of the moment is to try to heal that split so that our mind and our body is in the same place at the same time. To unify the mind and the body. This is what's happening now. This is where I'll reside. This is where I'll take, take up address. I'll make, make a home for me in the thusness of my experience, in the felt sense, this is what's happening now in the direct experience of things as they are, as opposed to living in the thoughts and ideas. 
Why do we live in our thoughts? Why do we tend to focus so much on ideas? I find it astounding how much I live in my thoughts and ideas. And it's a great relief for me when I begin experiencing life much more directly or much more fully. What happens when we live in thoughts, we really limit the life and it's very constricted. But there's a much wider sense of aliveness and presence that's much bigger than any idea or thought or commentary we might have. If someone, if one of you, walked next to me for 24 hours and talked to me constantly, nonstop, as much as I talk to myself in my brain all the time, I would be begging you to stop at the best of it, if I was polite. You know, I would, I'd be going batty. And especially if you were saying the same repetitive things that I say to myself <laughs> over and over and over again. I would get tired of that same thought train. I'd be disgusted with it. I'd say, I'd, you know, do anything I could to get, you know, get you to stop talking, say, saying the same thing 300 times. But what's fascinating is that when I say it to myself in my brain, it's fresh every time. <laughs> it's so interesting. It's just, you're laughing, so... <laughs> there must be some truth to it for you, too. Why is it that we're so interested in our thoughts? And I think a lot of it has to do that our thoughts have to do with our self-image and self-identity. They relate to who we think we are. And that self-image and self-identity arises out of comparative thinking, convention. And it's not who we are in our thusness. And I find it a great relief to experience myself as I am, as opposed to experiencing myself through the ideas and thoughts that I can be so preoccupied with. And part of what mindfulness is trying to do is to help us discover a much wider sense of life, wider sense of presence, wider sense of experience than what's possible if we're only preoccupied with thoughts and ideas. Preoccupied with our sense of self. Well, I'll read this. Anyway. I like this story a lot. A god decided to become visible to a king and a peasant and sent an angel to inform them of this blessed event. O king, the angel announced, God has deigned to be revealed to you in whatever manner you wish. In what form do you want God to appear? Seated on his throne and surrounded by awestruck subjects, the king proclaimed. I think the king was living in, his, in the commentary, in his idea, I am the king, the great almighty king. Who else would I wish to see? How else would I wish to see God, save in majesty and power? Show God to us in the full glory of power. So God granted his wish and appeared as a bolt of lightning that instantly pulverized the king in his court. Nothing, not not even a cinder, remained. The angel then manifested herself to a peasant, saying, God deigns to be revealed to you in whatever manner you desire. How do you wish to see God? Scratching his head and puzzling a long while, the peasant finally said, I am a poor man and not worthy to see God face to face. But if it is God's will to be revealed to me, let it be in those things with which I am familiar. Let me see God in the earth I plow, the water I drink, the food I eat, the breath I breathe. Let me see God in the faces of my family and neighbors. God granted the peasant his wish, and he lived a long and happy life. May God grant you the same. To see, to be in a thusness, to see the direct experience, to, to prefer, to give preference to the direct experience, over living in our ideas and thoughts. To feel, to see a sunset and to see it as opposed to immediately going into, oh, that sunset isn't as good as yesterday's sunset. 
or, you know, if I was painting this, I could make it a little better job. Or, or to feel the rain, to feel the rain coming down this building. I think it's just, I, I find it a delight and really precious, all the various felt senses in my body that, come, that kind of wash through me when the rain begins and I hear the sound and the roof and the wind. And, and I can have a whole different experience of the rain if I go into my thoughts and ideas about it. Oh, this means, I know I forgot my umbrella and therefore I'll get wet. I'll get wet, I'll get a cold, I'll get a cold. I'll have to end the retreat early, end the retreat early and be embarrassing to go home. I'll be embarrassed to my friends, they won't like me. I'll feel miserable. I'll have to do something about my misery. Maybe I'll think about going on a retreat. <laughs> and then finally I wake up and I realize I am on a retreat. Just to feel what it's like. An alternative to dwelling in thoughts is to begin moving into the felt sense of the experience. Anything that we're experiencing has a felt sense. The breath has a felt sense. An emotion has a felt sense. Uh, the wa- walking, the feet have a felt sense of what it feels like to be walking. The felt sensations. Felt sensations are belong to the world of thusness, to things as they are. There's no commentary in just feeling a physical sensation. And one of the powerful alternatives to begin breaking us of the habit of being lost in our commentary and preoccupations with thoughts is to begin dropping down into the felt sense, the felt sensations of our bodily experience of what's happening right now. Um, And the breath is that. You can do that through the breathing, feeling the breath. The breath itself is not a story. The breath itself is not the experience. the, The breath's experience itself, the body's experience of breathing is not a judgment, is not evaluation. It is just what it is. Can we, by coming back to the breath and the simplicity of just breathing, we begin being with something which is not a story. And as we do that, we begin softening and weakening the power of preoccupation, the power of always going into the story, always going into the judgment. And to develop some, some, some constancy with the breath, to kind of try there, not simply to watch it from a distance, but to actually live in the breath, in a sense, to live, to actually see that the awareness of breathing arises with the experience of breathing. The, the body's experience of breathing. Not what it's like to watch the breath, but what it's like for the body to experience the breathing, wherever you experience it. Can you, do some of you sense a difference between watching the breath and the body's experience of, it, of breathing? And as we do that, as we try to stay with the breath the best we can, we do a number of things, interesting things happen. One is we, we, we tend to soften the preoccupation with thoughts. We counter that great force of pulling us in there. And, and the other great thing that happens is trying to stay with the breath highlights so much of what goes on in our life. For example, one of the things it might highlight is your mind is out of control. I can hardly stay with more than two breaths. My mind just like crazy all over the place. That's considered a great insight. It's better to know that than to have it happen without knowing it, which is how it is often, oftentimes. And staying with the breath, the more subtle, more refined you become with the breath, the more that almost becomes like a highlighter that reveals all these aspects of our life that happens around it. Expectation, desire, thinking, um, our reactive mind, our commentary, the more and more refined and subtle you get with the breath, the more you can notice the subtlety, the refined subtlety of commentary and judgment and reactivity. So don't... Part of the function of of staying with the breath is to develop concentration. But part of it is simply not so much to get concentrated, but to be a highlighter so you notice other things that are going on that you wouldn't notice so easily unless you had that kind of anchor, that standard, that kind of... It's like, um, you know, you, you, if you put a big pole with, uh, with um, measuring lines on it in a, in a pond, and you can watch when the pond or the dam, and you watch when the dam and the water level raises, you need to have the stick to see the water raising. So the same way, the breath is kind of like a measuring stick. 
And so rather than being discouraged when you have trouble staying with the breath, part of the function of, of breath meditation is to notice, be mindful of all the things that are going on that make it difficult to stay with the breath. So hearing that, maybe you can be less judgmental about how difficulty it is. And then to hold that in the dustness, non-judgmental. Oh, I'm learning about myself. Well, this is what's going on. It's a process of discovery. And then coming back to the breath and continuing the cultivation. And we notice a lot, you know, as the surface kind of chatter and commentary of the mind begins to soften a little bit, it's kind of like uh, uh, the floodgates open sometimes. And the deeper intentions, the deeper motivations, resistance, anger, memories that reside there kind of flood to the surface. And you should know that so that when certain times when you sit here and you get somewhat calm and the next sitting you come back and you're just really agitated, it isn't that you've gone backwards, but rather maybe something deeper is moving inside of you that had a chance to surface because you are no longer so controlling, no longer controlling what's going on, or no longer constantly evaluating judging, but allowing something deep, deeper to happen. And when something deeper happens, can you just allow it to be there very simply? in the thusness of it. Not make a judgment, evaluation. Oh, that thought was a great thought. That was a better thought. Or whatever it is. The other way, alternative, kind of related to mindfulness of breathing, is mindfulness of the body. The body, any physical experience you have, is not a story, is not a judgment. Any physical experience we have belongs to the world of our thusness, the world of our felt sense experience, belongs to the world of our, the wide world of our aliveness. When the Buddha died, a monk went to Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, and said, well, now that the Buddha is dead, who's going to be our best friend? The idea was the Buddha was the, everyone's, everyone's best friend. And Ananda said, oh, Now that the Buddha is dead, no longer around around to guide us, mindfulness of of your body is your best friend. That's a remarkable statement, that your best friend will be your body, the mindfulness of your body. When I lived in, uh, when I did my first, one of my first Vipassana retreats in Thailand, uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa gave a Dharma talk. And it was wonderful Dharma talk, none of which I remember now. But, uh, at the end of the talk, as we were kind of filing away, he kind of said to a few of us standing nearby, kind of as an afterthought, he said, don't do anything that takes you out of your body. That was a bizarre statement to me. What did he mean? It was like a new concept. So I thought that was interesting, so I, I paid attention to this, this idea. Don't do anything that takes you out of your body. And what I noticed in my experience was how often I was not in my body, how often I was lost in thoughts and ideas, how often I was ahead of myself. A great time to have out-of-the-body experiences is on the way to lunch. People are often leaning ahead of themselves, kind of their center of gravity of attention is thinking of what's ahead. But to settle back into the body and let the body be the guide for the pace in which you take here at Spirit Rock during the retreat, to let your body be the guide of what you, how to pay attention, what to pay attention to. Um, to stay in touch, and that's a great expression, in touch with a tangible experience of your body, as a guide for entering into the world of thusness. I watch some people on retreat leaving a sitting and leaving going out of the hall or leaving whatever, I look at them and I say, that person might have been very mindful during the sitting, but the way that person's walking now and kind of just dashing out and, and grabbing their coat and putting on their shoes all at once and kind of rushing out the door and still putting on the coat and looking at the message board as they go out the door, that person might have been very mindful in the sitting, but that mindfulness is not present anymore now. They're no longer staying present. The opportunity on a retreat like this is to begin discovering the wonderful possibility of, this, of, our, of, of living our lived experience, living our aliveness, living what's happening at the present moment with awareness all the time. <laughs>
and not just simply do it in the sitting, but do it throughout the whole day. Not in a way that's forceful or tight or striving or tiring even, but in a way that hopefully is very, very simple and easeful. It's actually easeful to move, move in a way that allows us to stay present as we do that. It allows us not to get caught up so quickly in the stories and ideas and thoughts. Watch yourself sometimes as you leave this room, as you go down into the hallway. Notice, perhaps, how quickly it is for you to get lost in your story and your thoughts. Notice as you go through that door. Make the door your mindfulness cue. Notice if, as you're going through that door, are you present or are you in your thoughts and your ideas? I know one of the signs for me that I'm not present is when I go through the door, like I did just a little while ago, and, and let the door uh, kind of close by itself behind me with a bang. Because when I'm mindful, I'm conscious that I'm with the door, and I kind of close it quietly. There's a way in which uh, we, it's, it's, we want to nurture our awareness. We want to nurture our presence. We want to nurture here. We want to take a kind of care give, like a gentle little, something really gentle and soft and precious, our ability to be, be present. What's happening right now and right now? To remain conscious and awake. To remain awake. To, to safeguard our wakefulness. It's one of the most precious things in our life is our wakefulness. And to kind of go about the day, letting your body be the guide of how fast to go, how slow to go, so that you can kind of keep in your body, keep in the wakefulness of what's happening moment by moment. So you have a chance more often to come back when you do get lost. And then we can find in doing this an experience of living, an experience of being alive, where there's no grasping or no fending off anything, an experience of being alive where there's no fear. The experience when we can rest in the thusness of who we are, not needing to be anybody different than who we are. Sylvia said this morning, we all are unique. We're all so unique. We don't need to compare ourselves. We can just rest in ourselves. And in that, discover an all-pervasive trust in life, in ourself, where we don't have to grasp anything, we don't have to push anything away, but we can just sit in this moment, in the fullness of ourselves as we are. The wonderful gift we give ourselves. We give ourselves ourselves when we allow ourselves to be in our lived experience as opposed to living in the virtual world of thoughts. So let's uh, sit a little bit to finish. And the lived experience of being alive is always so much greater than any thought or idea we have. Can you relax into that larger sense of presence that's bigger than any thought and experience 
What is your body's experience of living right now? What is your life's experience of itself at this moment? This talk was given by Gil Franz de Litt Spirit Rock Meditation Center on November 23, 1998. It is an offering of the dark. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.